This is the Strode College Digital T Level Podcast. Yeah. There you go. Alright, so data. Okay. 3.1, the fundamental characteristics of data. So what is data? What does it mean? How is it used? How it all of the characteristics of data will determine how it's used, how it's stored, how it's manipulated, how it's moved, all those types of things. Now, this is, again, we can skip over this stuff. I guess this should be fairly common sense. So you've obviously, you're storing data in numbers, you're storing, storing letters, you're storing video files, geospatial stuff. If you've done any stuff with Jeff, you'll know that he's into his maps. So storing maps, that type of data is slightly different way it's manipulated and managed. Temporal data, I'm not even sure what that is. I'll have to look that one up. Temporal is, is of the mind. So I don't even know if you've covered that with Gemma, I don't know. Temporal data, come back to that one, I think. And then logical data about decision making. So particularly logical data is about decisions. If it, if this happens, do this. If it doesn't happen, do that. The sort of logic behind those things. Temporal, um, yeah, temporal state of time. So oh, time, okay, time. Yeah, that makes sense. Right, time and date. And again, computers timestamp every single thing into the thousandth of a second. And if you're doing transactions, particularly get into the hedge fund, if you get into that type of job, particularly for the data people here, managing numbers, particularly money. There's a lot of money in it. If you're doing like hedge funds, basically bet on. It's not. It's not. They, they wouldn't say that it's betting, but it's basically saying if the currency goes up and down, they bet on how much it's going to go up and down. If it goes up, if they've got millions of pounds on the date on the currency changing slightly, then they're going to make millions of pounds, even if it's just a couple of pence either way. And if you've been following, in terms of financial stuff, data management, if you've been following things, the after the Russians invaded Ukraine the actual ruble dropped through the floor, right, in terms of value. It's now back to where it was, right? So people, money is quite important. People don't care at the end of the day. And the ruble has gone back up to where it was before the war. So they haven't really lost anything to some extent. Right. Okay, that's uh, money data. Sources of data for organizations. So how do, how do organizations use data? What kind of data do they need? Most of this stuff is about making decisions. It? If you're doing these practical projects, the key thing about data, the main data that an organisation wants, at the end of the day, all they really care about is making more money, so the sales data. And again, we've done this in the employer set projects. This company's got X, you know, 5% more sales because they advertise in this area. Does that make any difference? You know, the sales data is quite important. From that sales data, you can make really important decisions. It looks like this particular product's going out a little bit over the time. Right? Or, more importantly, in these particular months, you know, that product goes through the roof. Most organisations gear up towards Christmas, and you'll know yourselves, each year it gets earlier and earlier when they start putting up the Christmas teas and playing the Christmas music in superstores and things like that, because it's, that's their main market in terms of money. Most companies, if they don't have a good Christmas, do not survive. That's probably 60% of their income comes over the Christmas months. And again, if they can extend those Christmas months on to four or five, they're gonna make more money. And, and in terms of sales as well, you know, um, Halloween was never a big deal when I was a kid. Now it is quite a big deal because it's another way of selling things, you know, start promoting all these products. Um, as soon as Christmas ends, the Easter eggs start appearing in the shops, don't they? Again, it's all about these sales opportunities. If you get that data, so those data help you make decisions. So if I've got loads and loads of data, I can analyze it and I could say, actually, in this particular month or this day of the month, things start really picking up and get loads and loads of money coming in. Why is that? What do we need to do to make sure that keeps happening or extending it, etc.? So the data helps you make decisions. The other data you need, marketing data. Again, marketing data is sending out posters and flyers and social media in order to engage people saying, and again, most of you have been talking about this stuff, um, talking about graphics cards. Obviously, before those graphics cards are released, six or seven months before they're hitting the market because they're in development, they start drip feeding the new graphics cards coming from NVIDIA, you know, get everyone excited about it. So it builds up to the point where, as you probably know, once that card hits the market, it sells out almost instantaneously because they've built up so much stuff in the marketplace. Um, again, well, we have, we've had this conversation with Wilfie about the Steam Deck. You know, they had so much good marketing going on. By the time it came out, it was delayed slightly, wasn't it? But they sold out within an instant. And that's a good marketing. You know, if you can make people get excited about a new product to the point where it sells out, it can backfire on you though. Again, the, the classic example was Buzz Lightyear. Disney did not anticipate the popularity of, of Toy Story. Uh, and that Christmas, the toy to have was a Buzz Lightyear toy. And they sold out in an instant. 
and people were getting really angry and fighting each other at the shops trying to get these toys. Um, and it, made, it actually backfired on a little bit, It made because it came back on Disney that they didn't support it well enough, and they sort of made all these angry children. You don't want a load of angry children on that. Financial data. So again, every year, at the end of the year, so every 31st of, if you get into any company, this will be one of your jobs in support, 31st of uh, March every year is crunch time, because they have to manipulate all the data in order to pay their taxes. Those that do, Amazon obviously don't. So that's quite important. So financial data, how do you know how much is being spent? And what happens is, particularly uh, in terms of support, in terms of data manipulation, at the end of the year, you've got to map, well, we paid this amount of tax, we should have paid, based on the law, we should have paid this amount of tax, and we're over, we're over paid too much or not enough. Right? One of the greatest things that can happen if you're self-employed at the end of the year is you find out that you paid too much tax and you get a big lump check back right? if you're self-employed. But companies do that as well. Other information, again, in terms of data, employee data. When you start working for an organisation, they'll keep track of the stuff that you do, how many hours you spent, how much holiday you're owed, how much tax you paid, all those types of things. And the key thing in terms of employee data is in terms of national insurance, right? The company, when you work for a company, you pay, or they take money out of your account and put it towards your national insurance, which pays for hospitals, pays for this other stuff, but they also take out money, hopefully, most companies will take out money towards a pension because when you finish work, the pension age currently, it used to be 60, it's gone up to 67 because people are a, bit, a lot fitter than they used to be. Uh, by the time you want to retire, it could well be 75 or something like that because you're going to be a lot fitter. But again, if you work until you're 75 and you're paying towards a pension, it means that if you live till you're 90, you've at least got 15 years of money to help you have a slightly decent life. The state pension is quite low, so again, you've got to pay into those systems. So employee data. Uh, also, in terms of communication, so what, what do you need to know about the employers, employees, um, communication with them, about their family life, about their practice, depends how, how much the company cares about the employee, I suppose. Then customer data. Most companies, if they get hacked and they lose their customer data, they're not, if they cannot recover it, they're, they're gone fairly quickly. Right? If you can't get in touch with your customers and keep the financial flows going, you're out of business quite quickly. And customer data is really valuable. Most people that hack into companies, that is what they're after, right? Because it's really valuable. If I can get if I can get all my competitors' customer email addresses, I can send them a nice little email saying, I know you've been buying this for five pounds, I'm gonna sell it to you for four pounds fifty. And you've suddenly got those customers, so that's really valuable. Customer data, but again, look at the stuff that uh, Alex and Lillian have been on, on their employer stock project. What do the customers want? What details do they have? When do they buy this stuff? Why do they buy it? If you buy stuff, particularly these days, like online stuff, you get all these surveys that follow you up. If you buy anything from eBay or Amazon, whatever, you get a follow-up. Can you please rate this product? You're doing all the marketing for them, so you're not really the customers anymore. And then usage data. In, at the moment, I think five or six cities have talked about this, I think five or six cities around the country, they're trialing 5G sensors. Now, the main reason they're doing that is because they want to track the pollution and traffic and sunlight and all these other factors. But in terms of traffic, again, there's huge sort of organisations in most central cities that actually track all that data and they try to manipulate the, the traffic lights and various other things to make sure that traffic runs smoothly. Because if it doesn't work smoothly, people then get quite angry, don't they, about the cities. So traffic data. So these are all different types of data that organisations use. You just need to understand a little bit of how they use. So in terms of exam type questions, it might be, what type of data is this? How would this be used by an organisation? So for example, why is it important to keep customer data for an organisation? Maybe a question on this app. So it's obviously important, because once you've lost the customers, you've lost all your income. So that's internal organisational data, then you've got external data, right? The public data. Now, I'm currently, I think it's finished now, because the money's dried up, but I took part in the ONS study, so every month, ONS's Office for National Statistics. Most famously, they, they obviously looking after the, the census. Every 10 years since 1831, they go around the country and they knock on your door. They used to knock on your door, now they send you an electronic paperwork. But they'd say, who lives in your house? What jobs do they have? What are their ages? What are their birth dates? All that stuff. So since 1830s, the UK has had that census going every 10 years. They've got really precise data about movements of people and all sorts of different things go on. And it's interesting to look at, and I, I looked at some, I did a bit of sort of family history, and way back in, I think it was 
probably the 1860s, my family had about 15 people staying in the house, and they were from all sorts of different countries, and I couldn't figure out why, but there was loads of tension in Europe, and the Huguenots were a particularly persecuted religious sect, and they all moved to England, and so they all stood in the house. Again, gives you quite interesting data about what's going on. Increasingly these days, if you look at government websites, it says that this data is based on open source licenses. The reason they're doing that is it's easier for people to develop, rather than the government having five people that, that they're dependent on, they can open source this stuff and anyone can develop it for them, so they get free, free work really. Uh, and then you've got public repositories. So lots of, at the moment, um, you can get access to loads of different data publicly. Most libraries, all, all the libraries that I've been into, they now have, they've got an online book service where they've turned most of the, most books these days are PDFs, aren't they? So you can actually rent books by PDF. So you log on, they've got a little account, it gives you this PDF download or access to this PDF for two weeks like you would in the library, and then it disappears. It makes things really efficient. So you've got repositories of all this public information and data that can be used. And then the government obviously has got its websites in order to track stuff. If you actually go onto any government website to do anything, <laughs> you can edit that out, can't you? If you go onto any government website, Increasingly these days, you have to go on in order to do things. So like if, you, if you are unfortunate enough to be unemployed, you have to go onto government websites to track stuff. You have to go on, I think you have to apply for three jobs every week in order to keep getting the money coming in, etc. Um, so government, all of that stuff happens. If, when you turn 18, you'll get a little slip from the government saying, please register with the government in order to vote, etc. Et so everything in terms of external data is on these government websites now. And for the government, it's a, it's a cost-saving exercise. Rather than having hundreds of civil servants that are in front of a desk talking to you, they just make you do everything on a website. Right? It's very cost effective. Uh, external stuff, then you've got suppliers. If you're buying, like when you're buying stuff for your computer fixes, when you're doing your support work, obviously you'll have a list of suppliers. All those data will say, here's how much this stuff costs, here's how much it will pay you in terms of postage and tracking, etc. etc. You'll also have external information about your competitors. Most companies will be looking at their competitors' websites and seeing if they're offering slightly different things. Are they doing things better than us? How can we undermine them? How can we beat them? How can we be better than them? So the competition is quite important. That external data, if you know what the competitors are up to, it can really help you get an edge. Uh, sectors and industries. Again, if you're like in the support industry, most of you do this anyway, but you're going to keep an eye on the, the, the fluctuation of prices, aren't you? Uh, at the moment, and some of the stuff we're doing with these, these second-hand laptops you've got, obviously going back and forth looking at the pricing and stuff, how much is moving around. We're buying stuff in order for, to fix things in, in 208, and the price of hard drives is going up and down slightly based on different things. Um, so the industry, what's happening to the industry, and there are these external factors that will impact on those things. Again, back in 2005, when the massive tsunami hit Indonesia, most of the companies on, or along the coast, because it's just really good for cooling and things like that, got hit really badly. And after that tsunami hit 2005 Indonesia, the price of RAM went through the roof for about three years. It, it doubled overnight because they couldn't supply it anymore. And at the moment, <coughs> there's supply problems with them um, because of COVID factories being closed down. There are some problems at the moment. If you've been following the news, most of the silicon manufacturing that goes on for most hardware is, is made in predominantly in, in the east coast of China, and it's all filtered through Hong Kong because that's the sort of hub to the west. Hong Kong is currently in lockdown, as is most of China, because they've been hit really hard by the latest Omicron, and it's really hitting them bad. So chips, chips are in real short supply. And that's been happening for some time. I mentioned before, I ordered some Raspberry Pis a couple of months ago, and they're still a year out because they just cannot get the chips. Uh, and then market research data, so what is the market doing? There are loads of organisations. The main one is Mori, I think, is the main um, organisation that does polls. So Mori, if you go on their website, you can get data, statistical data about what people are thinking about. Um, and it does, it depends on the sort of veracity of it, how often it happens. But Mori, for example, has, does surveys on people about their opinions, particularly about political issues. So again, you can see the up and down movements based on what's going on in the press at the moment. Um, of what people are going to do in terms of voting and, and their voting intentions. So that stuff's quite important. But market research, if you've ever done this, if you go into city centres, you'll generally see people with clipboards that are there, funded by these organisations, just doing surveys. I don't think no, they necessarily do that much anymore. Now they'll probably just send you websites and say, please fill this in. Not many people do it, but it's very valuable in terms of what's going on in the marketplace. 
And then external repositories. So again, I guess the main repository for most stuff for support-wise, for you guys, I guess, is GitHub. GitHub is a main repository for software resources. Um, and I've ordered, I've been, I've been cheated by GitHub. I signed up to get an educational account and they said that you can get all this swag. So I ordered 50 pieces of swag to see all they'd be t-shirts, but they said you get all these badges and stickers and books and two t-shirts. Anyway. Uh, public repositories, obviously external stuff, you can go there and get data. What's the point of writing your own software code when somebody else has already done it for you? So repositories are places that store data for you to access. And there is, in um, Iceland, I think it is, because Iceland's obviously naturally cool underground, they don't need to spend loads of energy cooling stuff. They've got loads and loads of servers, and they're keeping massive repositories of every single piece of software that's ever been made. They also, sort of slightly unrelated, but they've also got every single seed of every single plant that currently exists, and they're trying to keep it because a lot of things are going extinct. Same sort of thing, I suppose. And then storing data. So first of all, on-premise storage. Right, on-premise just means within the building. So most organisations in this organisation, all of your data is stored in, in A block where the main servers are. We are moving some stuff up into the cloud, but for the time being, I think most stuff is going to be internally stored. Um, so on-premise storage is quite important. There is, every time you log on to the internal network here, we've used uh, LDAP, Lightweight Directory Access Protocol, that's a database that runs on Windows servers, which basically keeps all your names and your group policies and all the other bits and pieces. So when you log on to the network, it says, yes, they're part of my network. Here's their desktop. Here's all their files. Here's their three kilobytes of storage space. Uh, it gives you all that material. Right? But that database controls all that, that internal database. There's also, obviously, when you log on to um, Student Advantage, it obviously gives all the data about your attendance and all those other bits and pieces. So all of that is database-driven data. Uh, then you need to know about, in terms of storing, you've got different file structures. Increasingly, databases are turning to what's called NoSQL. It's like a big XML file. It's just much more efficient for reasonable amounts of data, rather than loads of database tables. So there are two different types of databases now emerging. Um, but you've been looking at, presumably looking at file structures like XML files or SQL files and type, those types of things. So how do you store data? Increasingly, most, um, like Word, Word documents uh, are now in XML, extensible markup language. It means you can just embed loads of bits and pieces into the document in terms of format. It also makes it more open if you're exchanging data. So think about file structures and file formats. Obviously, you've got database files, spreadsheet files, all those different things. They've got a different way they handle stuff and do things, but you just need to understand what they do. So storing data in those types of files. Then you've got different uh, physical equipment. Obviously, most hard drives these days are solid-state drives. I mean, that's fairly ubiquitous these days. That said, you know, most old systems, old servers that are still running fine are probably still running on those old drives because they're just very efficient. However, one key thing about those drives is they do have um, a limited... Well, you know, some of them, it varies. I think everything's sort of statistical, isn't it? But they've got an, a, a mean time before failure of 10,000 hours, which is about three years. Right? So most hard drives shouldn't last much long, longer than three years, in theory. So again, when they test these things, they'll run them flat out for three years and they'll fail, most of them. That's something to remember. Uh, in terms of data storage, obviously you need to know the difference between these in terms of the volumes, the, the actual data transfer rates, etc. Um, there were, initially, with the SSD drives, there were lots of problems with trying to maintain the actual storage. They did tend, have a lot of... Um, overwrite problems, and they would just fail quite a lot. The early SSDs were very unreliable. Um, again, hard drive, the, the spinning disks were quite reliable technology. Increasingly, I suppose, you know, people are moving over to SSDs because of the cost of them. But in, initially, the SSDs were incredibly expensive. Now, they're not particularly expensive at all. Um, they're really reasonably cheap, even though little, the tiny little things you can get now, they're really cheap, aren't they, in a way? SSDs of £25 for 128 gigabytes. I mean, it's fairly cheap, I guess. Um, and I, I think over time, the spinning disks, hard drives, HDDs will disappear, I would imagine. Um, but they are quite reliable over time. Again, you need to make that decision. So an exam question might be, why would you use SSDs as opposed to HDDs? It's about speed, performance, reliability, etc., cost. 
portable storage devices, in, you know, everyone's probably got a USB stick, they carry around them. I mean, you're, in a way, your phones probably have more storage than most you know, computers that make, I guess, got quite a lot of storage space on them. Um, and if you've got a phone, generally, either with Apple or, or, or Android, you've probably got a terabyte of storage online as well. Loads of storage, it's getting really, really cheap. Portable storage device, again, carrying that stuff around. It's useful, but if there are some security issues. Obviously, everything on terms of internal network on-premises can be on a file server. The college runs on a several different servers. One of the servers, I'm told, I don't know whether it's an urban myth, but one of our servers that does some function in the college, because it only does it, is running on a 486. Really? Apparently. Oh my I don't know if that's an urban myth. Um, most of you these days are 686 instruction set. 4x6 is about 30 years old, but there is a there is a, a, a lathe in the workshop which only it's never been updated. It runs on Windows 95 because the company that runs it that's all they needed, and they've never updated the software to work with any other operating system. So again, so there's some of these issues. So file servers, obviously, most organisations will have some type of server. The server controls. It's got the space, the resources, and all the management software in order to make sure that all of these computers function together. Uh, and then network address storage, so some device on the network which acts as a storage device. Has anyone got a NAS device at home? Yeah. yeah. Um, it's just basically a set of RAID hard drives that you can contact across the network to do functions. And then storage area network tend to be big servers that act as basically pools of data. Right? If you get to the point where you need those types of things, you're storing a huge amount of data. But the amount of data, you know, I think in college, if you think about it, if, if you all had in the college a gigabyte each, there's a thousand students here, you know, that's a lot, adds up over time, doesn't it? So you've got to make those decisions. Two terabytes. Two terabytes. Yeah. Or maybe it's not, I guess, two terabytes. Probably not. Yeah, I've got one, got a hard drive that size. I think everyone's got a... I mean, I can give you a terabyte if we've you got, We've got 10 gig, I think, on there, yeah. or 50. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, I might change it to 10 yeah. gig. Yeah. Again, in terms of still twenty terabytes. Yeah, it's not as big. In terms of buying it yourself, that stuff's quite cheap. But when you start putting it onto a network and managing it, it starts getting quite expensive. When you stick it in the cloud, it gets really expensive. So that's in, that's on premise, right? So that's all the stuff that's in your organisation physically. We've then got stuff that's in someone else's organisation, right? The cloud just means a computer somewhere else. That's all it means. <laughs> Um, so in the cloud, you can get different types of service in the cloud. You can have, and when you specify a cloud system, you can see if you go onto the websites and do a bit of research, you can just have file storage. So again, the, the college could say, we've got some data we just need to store, we don't have space for it. You can dump it onto a, a data file store, like a data lake up in, the, up in the cloud. You're saying, I'm not accessing it, I just want it there safely stored and managed. Right? You, don't get, you don't get charged a lot of money for it, but... You can put loads of data up there and it just sits there quietly in the background being managed by this other company. Right, it's a cheap way of doing it. Um, you can then have specific objects. So again, you might store something which would be an active database. That would be an object that would be stored there, something would be interacted. Um, and then block storage. I guess storing individual elements of some sort of program. Okay, you might store these different things. If you like... GitHub sort of stores blocks and elements of different things, like parts of your program or somebody else's program, various libraries you can interact with. And all of these things can be pulled into your system when, as and when you need them. Uh, the key thing, and again, there will be questions about the cloud, I would imagine. The key thing about the cloud is this elasticity and scalability. If, if I pay for a cloud-based service, so at the moment, our next cloud system with Mahar and all that other stuff is running on a, an iron server. It's got... It's got a specific set of space, a specific set of RAM, specific hard drive. I cannot change those elements unless they shut it down, physically, manually stick stuff in it and boot it back up again, right? It's really inconvenient. If I'm running on the cloud, I can call up my cloud provider and say, in, uh, in August, I've got all these exams going on, can you give me a bit more RAM and a bit more data storage just for that particular month? And I pay for that extra bandwidth, right? And that's the thing. The cloud, the, the server I've got, it is still in the cloud, but it's a physical server. It's flatlining most of the time, right, because we're not really using it. So it's quite expensive for doing very little. If I pay for the cloud, 
if it started getting busy, then I'd be charged for that little busyness. The rest of the time, I'd be paid a really base fee. So I go into terms of costing. And then the scalable thing, if, I, if my company, if I set up a cloud-based system and my company goes really, gets really popular, I can just dial up the amount of RAM, the amount of storage, the amount of resources over So that's the elasticity of the scalable. And then cloud-based database services. So again, I've signed up for, has anyone had a go on this Oracle stuff? They keep nagging me about it. Has anyone tried it? No, no, I've got it I saved on my bookmarks. I've got it. I've got saved on my bookmarks, so I haven't done it because I was yeah, I haven't either. Screen. They keep saying, how are you getting on with it? I haven't really got time. I will so again, on, if anyone else wants to have a go at this, I can sign everyone up. But I've signed up for Oracle. Obviously, they're the biggest company in the world that does databases. Their databases run the NHS and all sorts of things. It's quite good to get into if you like money. Alex. Alex. Um, so, cloud-based database system. So, Again, you know, as we move into bigger and bigger and bigger data sets, this big data world we're moving into, if you think about these cities that are placing 5G detectors all over the shop, those are sucking in huge amounts of data. And what are they doing? Where they're storing it? How they're managing it? So increasingly stuff's going up into cloud databases because they're very easy to manage and manipulate. Right, so that's 3.1. Just the basics of data, how it's done, how it's stored, how it's manipulated, what kinds of data there are, and how some things work. Uh, 3.2, the fundamental functions of information systems, applications, data. We need to go through this. This is input, process, output. Do you want me to go through it? Skip it, everyone? Yeah, no, I think we could skip it. Sure. I'll just skim through it quickly. So, input, input, output, storage, processing, transforming data, analyzing, updating, moving, integrating, outputting, research, feedback, etc. 3.3 then, I mean come back to it if you don't, when you, if you revise and look through it and say I don't know then ask me or, or you know, pose a question. The concepts and tools of data modelling. So higher up with database model, um, a hierarchical structure obviously is, is a top down type of thing. Right? So a database model in terms of hierarchy will be looking at the end result and then working backwards from that to say uh, this needs to support the, the, the different layers if you like. So a hierarchical model is like a pyramid, in a way. So at the top, um, again, I, you, would act, you would access, I'm trying to think of an example of a hierarchical model. Um, I suppose like you're, you're, when you're looking at your student services, you're the top of that particular thing, you, you as an individual. But related to that is what other people are doing within your course, because that may relate to you in terms of your overall attendance, for example. It may be related, then, then there'll be some relationship below that, which might be looking at you versus the A-level students or whatever, or you versus students doing other T-levels, etc., etc. So that's how the hierarchy, but you're the central focus, but how does that relate to other things that are going on within the Strode College, for example? So that'd be a hierarchical database model. Um, network model, I guess the databases would be individually running on nodes all over the shop, but if you think about big multinational companies, you know, the, the stuff that goes on in the database in... Like for a company like Sony, the stuff that happens in Japan is going to be different from stuff that goes on in Europe and, and America, for example. Right? And if you go to, and it's not 100% related, but as, a, as a, an analogue, if you like, if you think about, if you ever go and travel abroad, you'll see that the cars that are made for the Japanese market are totally different. There are some similarities, but there's some that very specifically for Japanese market that and they're not in Europe, they're not in America, and vice versa. There's stuff in the American market. The cars in the American market made by the same companies are totally different from what they're like in Europe because of laws and various other things. That's like a network model. Again, the data you're storing, if you're storing stuff on a, on a particular car model it, for the overall company, the stuff in, in America is going to be different from the stuff in Europe. But there need to be some sort of similarity. So that's a sort of networking model whereby you bring that data together, you compare the similarities, and then you make a database assumption about it. But each one's going to be slightly different. Does that make sense? Uh, and then I assume everyone's done these ERDs, entity relationship models. You've got the ideal is to have a one-to-many relationship using primary and secondary keys. Yeah, doing all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. To some extent, more so you two, I suppose. And it's about relationship. So again, using that example of your student advantage, when you log on to your student advantage page. It will read the tables about you in terms of attendance, but it will also compare your attendance to other people, etc., etc. So you'll have an entity relationship diagram, which will show your particular data in relation to other things. 
right? And the way that's linked, so when you log on to your, your student advantage, it's going to look, at, look up from one table all the information about you, but then it will look through some field and say, actually, they're a student in the vocational, so let's look at that stuff. And they're doing this qualification, so look at that stuff. They're, this staff are the ones that are teaching them. So those are all the different relationships, even though the centre of it is you as an individual. Yeah. And again, when you're designing databases, you need to think about those relationships in order to make the, the right sort of yes. models. Um, so you probably looked at entity relationship diagrams. Again, that's just a conceptual model of here's the central table. So here's customers. Each of these customers buys a, a phone from Wilfie at Tesco's. Those phones are from these suppliers. These suppliers uh, want this sort of payment. Um, these suppliers also have these secondary accessories that you can have with your phone. So you've got all these relationships centering on that one aspect of, of a job. Right? Use that example. And relational database then, again, if you're searching for stuff. So if I'm looking for the customers that bought a certain kind of phone from Wilfie over the last four months, it's going to look through all those different tables because the relationship between them and say, 16 people bought this phone in this time frame, and therefore he's worth a bonus, hopefully. Pay the man. Uh, data flow diagrams, everyone's done those? We've done those for task one or two, haven't we, I think? Yeah. Have we not? Maybe no not. Maybe the other group do uh. flow diagrams. So data flow diagrams really is just a conceptual model. You know, you've got to work out if you're making a database, what is the flow of data? You know, so somebody buys a product, it goes to here, goes to there, goes to here. Only if that happens, so there's a little bit of a loop going around. So you've got this little flow of diagrams from start to finish. That's a data flow diagram. Yeah. It's again when you're designing anything, you're going through a very sort of conceptual abstraction. Yeah. So an abstract model. This is this is a sort of picture picture book thing of what the data is doing. You then go into more detail, okay, that, let's turn that into an entity relationship diagram, then let's program the actual database and start testing it. Yep. So level zero, level one, you know, what's the base level? What, what's the most, at the simplistic level, what's going on with the data system? So if you think about it, like when you log on to the college system, what is the flow of data? So you log in, it then has certain functions behind there saying, check the password, check that they're on the right domain, check all these other factors. Once that happens, then the screen starts spinning with your name, doesn't it? As it goes off to these other devices saying, check they're, they're part of the college, check they've got their functionality, check that they've got these different bits and pieces, check they haven't you know, gone 500 pounds on their printing bill, whatever, blah, blah, blah. All this stuff is then checked against all these different systems, processed, and then it comes back and obviously your login pops up. So in terms of data flow. Now, that's a simple, simple um, overview of how that process works. But when you go into the real detail of it, there's loads of stuff going on that's really complicated. Right, so just, again, it's visual representation of flows of information. So it may be on the exam, I don't know, I don't think it will be, it may be though, say, do a diagram for this process. And just say, input, process, feedback, output, along those lines. We can go over that, I suppose, if it's, pages looking perplexed. <laughs> I might, might go over those then. I've got some good examples. Any questions on that? I think we could skip data entry as well if everyone's happy. What's data entry? Everyone oh, clear on integers, floats, really all that stuff? Yeah. Oh, Doubles. Okay, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. Um, textual booleans. Yeah. Yeah, we just covered Validation, it. verification, okay. Just covered yeah. Yeah. Right. Data. Right. The flow of data. Everyone okay on that? Different types of data. Right, characteristics of data format. So this is going into the more fine-grained detail about what how data is is basically structured in, in a very small sense, I suppose. So file-based structures. Again, I mentioned earlier on about NoSQL or XML files, increasingly databases, because they're very sort of being so widely used, and an old-fashioned sort of um, directory structure database is quite clunky in a way. It's okay for really big projects, but if you want to spin up a quick database and you're not going to store millions and millions of bits of data, you can probably just stick it into one file. So you've got these new things. The, the main open source database is MySQL, but that's been, and I think that's been bought out by uh, Oracle, which is the big database company. But because that, because again, this is what it's like in the open source community, 
that most people that were developing it didn't want to be part of that big company, so they spun off MySQL and they made a, a file structure version called Maria, and they made a NoSQL version called Mongo. Right? And that Mongo database just keeps one file, a big XML file, which is easy to search through very quickly. Think about the processing power of computers. It's quite easy to just zip through a file of three or 400 lines and find what you're looking for. So again, very efficient. Um, so file-based structure, consistent attributes, data type validation. Again, if it's all in one file, it should be fairly consistent. If you've got a directory structure, it might have slightly different structures here and there, in which case it's going to add some type of sort of delay to what you're trying to do. Um, within that file structure, the context is all there, so it will tell you exactly what all that data is stored for. It will be very well categorised, very efficient in terms of searching and retrieving, which is what you want. Isn't it? A database needs to be quick and efficient, and a file-based structure is much better at that for smaller, smaller jobs. So within the file, if you look at an XML file, it will have categories, categorizations, all in that one file. It might be quite a big file, you know, relatively, but it, it's all in there, all in the same format, very easy to find. So the database can quickly zip through that big file and find exactly what it needs, rather than going across table after table after table, trying to find things. So that's quite good. Firebase structure is useful for sort of small to medium-sized projects, I would guess, um, and very efficient, very quick. Once you get up to really big sort of projects, then you need to move into more of the directories. And if you think about I mean, a directory-based database, if you think about, um, let's see if we can find. See, if I scroll down through this, this is all the tables that make up Mahara, for example. Right, so fairly complex directory structure. All of those are tables. Each one of those, if I go to one of the tables, you can see the data. So again, you've got table after table after table with loads and loads of fields. Hundreds, just in that tiny little table, there's 160 odd fields. So a directory structure is quite efficient for a complex site and you, you can't do that easily in one single file I wouldn't have thought because it's just just the complexity of it. If again if you did that as a data flow diagram or entity relationship diagram you'd have hundreds of tables all over the shop all linked to each other. So you then get to a directory structure. So looking at that each one of those tables is a different file held on the system um, contains different attributes data types of validation so again if, if you've got a really complex database you might have different directory structures need to have different tables if you need to. You can't do that in an individual file. It has to be across a directory. Um, the context, usually you have a configuration file which tells you what the context is across all these different attributes. Again, it's getting really complex and involved and it can only be managed in that type of scale. Um, relational data is referenced across multiple files. So each of those files is, is, if you look at the actual file structure, have you played around with PHP MyAdmin at all? No, I'll take a look at it later on. If you look at PHP or admin, it, it tells you in that it's a visual interface, really. It tells you all the relationships and sub relationships and individual keys and private keys between all these different relationship entities. Really involved. Um, I don't think it shows on this one if there's any entity keys. No, I don't think it does. I'll see if I can get the PHP map and just to show you. But again, if you think about the relationship between these, some relationships have sub-relationships which are quite complex. Again, you have these secondary keys and, and primary keys that talk to each other across these tables because that data is related to itself, but it could be a really second or third order relationship. If you know what I mean? Yeah, the, the relationship could be in several tables, but not directly related, but related through four or five other attributes, if that makes sense. So again, it gets quite complex at that level, and you need to know what those relationships are. And I think to think about uh, the name root, you know, relation, relation, if you think about the relationship with your own family, you might have second, third, fourth cousins, etc. all these different relationships, or grand aunts. Does anyone come across that? A grand aunt, or great aunt, sorry. Your mum's aunt is your great aunt, etc. etc. So relationships get quite complex. 
Uh, data sets are extracted from systems and filtered. So again, when you're doing query, when you're querying this data, you'll pull out a sort of subset of the data in order to extract what you're looking for very specifically. So what is the data you're looking for? How does it relate to these other bits and pieces? And is it the information you need? If you've got a massive database, millions and millions of bits of data across all these different entities, it's going to be quite difficult to get that stuff out. So you need to filter down to get specifically what you're looking for. That's where SQL comes in, query language saying, I want this data from this field, from this table that relates to this other table that relates to this, that, and the other. You get really long, complex queries. And effectively, you see that to some extent when you start typing stuff into Google. As you start typing it, it starts making these relationships of saying, oh, you're looking for this, which means you're looking for this, means you're looking for this, 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 all these sub-points. Sub uh, data can be structured in hierarchy. So again, that's the data I'm looking for, but it's related to this, to this, to this, all these different levels and layers. And a uh, directory file structure means that data owners and sources can be across many different things. So again, increasingly these days, cloud-based database systems um, can be involved in all sorts of different areas. And if you've seen that, um, not exactly related, but again, as, as an analog to this, the, the problems we've been having installing VirtualBox, because when you log onto machines, it plays up. Uh, Jeff and I have been installing it on one cloud, which means you can access it from anywhere, and it doesn't change at all, which seems like quite a useful thing, but there's a lot going on there in terms of accessibility and attributes and all these things in order to make that run, because it's running on some cloud system somewhere, but it's then got to come down and some of it's got to run locally. It's got to be authenticated against Microsoft and all the other servers. It's a huge amount of stuff going on, but it does work. Uh, does give an example of how these data systems talk to each other. So that's a directory-based system. So I think if you think directory-based system, just think about your on your college system, you can create folders and subfolders and sub-subfolders in order to organise your information. So on your directory, you might have you know, your, your T-level, and under that you might have unit one, under unit one you might have this, that, and the other, down and down and down, all the way through these sub-directories. Uh, relational databases, the granddaddies of them, every data is organised using normalisation. Normalisation, really complex. Have you done any with Gemma? First yeah. normal form, second normal form, all that stuff? Oh, yeah. Excellent. I don't want to go to that again. And again, normalisation just means that you don't have repetition. If you've got repetition, you can't find what you're looking for. And again, even though data is quite cheap, you know, hard drives are getting cheap, it's not cheap in terms of resources if you've got loads of redundancy. So if you've got four or five places that store the same data, that's a lot of waste. It also means you can't find what you're looking for, because when you look for that one element, you find five different examples of it, slightly different each time. It just means your data is a load of rubbish. So normalization, breaking down to the tiniest bits, means you've got efficient data usage. Uh, again, data is connected by relationship. But this afternoon, I'll try to show you MySQL for PHP my admin, just to show you how that functions in terms of the actual individual structures. But the data is connected through these entity relationships. Again, you know, you're related to your your cousin through this, but that cousin again. Does anyone know that the, the the thing about six degrees of separation? Never heard that. There is you can you can be linked to anyone in the world through six degrees of separation. Yep. So six six steps. So for example, my friend I went to university with, he now works for this big charity. That's one step. This charity's patron is. Prince Charles, and Prince Charles is the son of the Queen. So three steps to the Queen I am. That's six degrees of separation, not that I care about it. Six degrees of separation, right? You can link to anyone, presumably, through those six steps. Anyone in the world, some way or other. Uh, that's data relationships, connections. Uh, structured query language, data processing. So again, structured query language, if you see that an example of, I'll bring an update this afternoon, uh, basically, find this element in this table from this database, from this, 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 with these attributes, these characteristics, and it pulls it up. And again, an example of that, without seeing the underlying code, is using Google Search. When you start searching for stuff, it's querying massive amounts of website databases saying, this person wants the top 10 of this item. Uh, and then server-client implementation. So again, when you're designing databases, you're using this PHP and my admin is basically a client thing which allows you to design databases. I think on the system, we've got, if I remember, DB Lite or something, if you've used it, uh, DB Browser, SQLite. So again, 
There's most systems come with this SQLite, which is just a very lightweight database, and most databases will have a client interface for, to allow you to design stuff. PHP My Admin is an online one, and again, if I can, I'll, I'll try and show you this afternoon how that works. If you're working with big databases, particularly MySQL, you'll probably use that system. Um, and in terms of databases, what's, this is uh, characteristics of formats. So the importance for analysis. If it's organized well enough, again, this Gigo effect, if there's a load of garbage in, then that's what you're going to get out. So the better you organize a database, the better you plan it. That's why going from the conceptual abstract phase into the actual design is really important. If you don't work out the data flow through these diagrams and make sure that that, that on paper at least works, you end up with a product which is rubbish. So you spend all these time, loads and loads of time making this fantastic database. Loads of people chuck all sorts of information in it. And then you try and get the information out and you can't because it's, it's put in, in capitals and lowercase and mixed all the other. You can't find what you look for. So if you do this stuff effectively, using proper SQL on all these other bits and pieces, it's much easier to find what you're looking for. So the query is looking for it. How do I find what I'm looking for? If it's well structured, then I can put in structured comments or structured query language and find exactly what I'm looking for very quickly. Uh, it's easier to keep up to date. Again, if the database has been designed properly, it's much easier to update the tables and fields because it, you can find them quickly and populate them and change them. And with a good database, you can do a, a query language and just say, find um, if somebody gets married, for example, at work, find Ms. Smith, change it to Ms. Whatever, Mrs. Whatever, right? Bang, through the command line, it just updates the whole database. It could be thousands of entries. It's done instantly. Um, supports for drawing conclusions. Again, if you've got a really good database, we go back to the earlier things about making market decisions and sales decisions. If I've got a good database which tells me very specifically what my company's up to, very to precise detail, I can actually sit down and say, right, we've got a 0.1% growth in the last couple of months, every single month. Bit by bit, stuff's going up on these shades, you know, sunglasses, for whatever reason. Therefore, I can put more money into marketing to increase that to 0.2 or 0.3 or 0.4%, you know, make the sales grow. So the data, as long as you can store it properly and extract it, you can make really informed decisions and move forward as a company. Uh, and it also allows sharing. So again, if you've got an online database, you can give access to people through a client where they can interrogate that database as well. And again, the biggest, most complex example of that, which everyone uses daily, is Google. Google is just a database interface to a massive database, right? Google's database is in several servers across the world, server farms, which collectively, you know, use a huge amount of energy in order to store out data, but you can find anything, anything you want, and share it if you want to. Right, so we've got all this data, we've got it all formatted, we know it works. It's then about how to output that data in a useful form. So this is the representation, visualization, we need to go through this. Everyone okay on that stuff? So that's different ways of, of exporting the data or outputting it in some way. Video sound, visualization, graph charts. So again, some of the questions on the exam might be along the lines of, with this data, what kind of visualization would you use? Would you use a heat map, etc.? Um, suitability applications, formal and informal, blah, 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 briefs, audience. Some of that is in the employer set project, I suppose. So, what about applications of data within an organisation? Can you go through that? Is that fairly common sense, or do you want to go through some detail? What would that include? Um, how organisations use that data. Once they've made it, makes they're on fancy charts, where, how do they use it, where do they use it, why do they use it? Can we go through that briefly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, it's a bit repetitive, I guess. The first thing is, for analysis purposes, the database is very, very valuable. Again, they say data's the new oil. We did that as an, an essay question, didn't we, way back. Um, so, looking for trends and patterns. This is coming up on your employer set project. What trends and patterns can you observe from that data? Um, if we look at, again, as an example, uh, let's have a look. Don't like dwelling on this, but again, it's quite useful visual data. Um, So again, we look at our local scene, sort of visualization. All right, so 
Visualization of data. So this is our obviously our postcode. 18% increase in infections being reported. The average for England is 800. This postal code is well, 1,200 infections per 100,000. Um, in terms of interpreting data visually, we've got fairly good uptake of the vaccine. 85% first dose, 81 second, 67 boosters. However, patients admitted to local hospitals, it's 120 in the last seven days. There aren't very many hospitals locally, so that's a lot of pressure. Uh, and two additional deaths in the last couple of days, although the testing's obviously gone down 24%. So in terms of visualization, to make trends and patterns. So my interpretation of that is that things are getting bad again in terms of infections, right? Uh, and increasingly, infections for people that aren't vaccinated, which tends to be young people, going up quite high. So trends and patterns, again, if, if you identify those trends and patterns, presumably you can make a decision about it. Okay, things are going up, let's bring back some sort of restrictions in order to protect people against this virus, for example. Or sales are going down for whatever reason, we're starting to lose customers, what is the problem? You know, if you look, pick those trends, the sooner you can find those trends and problems, the sooner you can fix them and st stop losing income. Yeah? So trends and patterns in the data are really important. Uh, monitoring performance, increasingly, I have to fill in all sorts of bits and pieces. At the end of this year, I'll have to submit all of the different bits and pieces in terms of the courses that I've run in order to, to rate my performance. So again, if, if all of you bomb out on your exams, that's, that goes against my performance data, doesn't it? Because again, that's how do they measure what I'm doing? I, they can only measure what I'm doing by what you're doing. So if you don't do very well, then I don't do very well either because I haven't done my job. So in terms of monitoring performance, that's how you're going to measure things, isn't it? If you're working in a company, the company will say to you, I expect you to do this, this, this by the end of the year. And at the end of the year, you say, did you do this, this, this? To what extent did you do it, etc." Um, and then monitoring performance in terms of products and services. Most companies, like, again, Wilf is probably expected to sell a certain number of phones per month in Tesco's as part of his job. You know. Statistically, they'll say across the country, we're selling this amount of phones per month, so that is your target, right? So that's what companies do. They say, this is what the average is, you should be above average or on average, not below average. If, if you're below average, then obviously you've got one chance and then you're out the door. Um, forecasting, predictive analysis, right? making forecasts, nothing is, is written in stone, but forecasting, depending on the power of the computers you've got, can give you quite useful data to make decisions. So, most of us, I guess, would be using forecasting on a regular basis. Um, this is a visualisation of the weather. This wind. Um, again, so this is obviously computers are running what the current, they've got all these sensors all over the world, it's picking up all the amount of rainfall, the wind direction, the wind speed, all these different elements. From that, they can predict that, for example, they could say statistically, because this big storm's out in the Atlantic, that's going to come across maybe this direction, so in four or five days' time, based on the wind speed and all the other pressure stuff, you know, have an umbrella in four or five days' time, etc. Um, and again, can't really see it from there, but um, I think this has moved on. That's why it's quite cold today. There's, there's quite a lot of snow in the UK. Again, they've predicted that because the weather patterns can predict those things. So making predictions from trends in data uh, informed decision making. So again, you'll look at the weather, you'll say, you'll look at the weather in the morning, it says it's going to rain, then you'll take a raincoat. Right? So that's a forecasting. Informing decision making in terms of analysis. So the, the more accurate the data, the better. And the actual, the, the computers they use for weather forecasting are some of the most powerful in the world. Because it's so complex, all these different attributes of what the weather may or may not do. Um, marketing in terms of data, customer profiles. Again, I don't know if you do, I, don't, I think there was one task on, maybe not on your exam, maybe on somebody else, on the other group's exam, but doing a customer profile, you'll do a sort of overview of, of your ideal customer. 
what age they are, what their interests and hobbies are, all those types of things. And you'll do this persona, and you'll make sure everything fits that persona, because that's not a real person, but that's close enough to loads of different people that you're going to maximise your sales. Right? So having that marketing data, and you'll start sending out stuff to those people, depending on what your company does. So most phone companies are going to be sending out stuff. I guess the ideal... Or, or the main person that buys phones, probably people in their sort of mid-late 30s, uh, mid-late 20s, got their first job, got quite a bit of money, they want the, the most up-to-date fancy phone, for argument's sake. So most of the marketing you will see on television and stuff will be targeted towards. If you look at the adverts for phones on the TV, it's mostly people in their late 20s, early 30s, because they've got the money to buy the most up-to-date phones, really. And that's what you would spend all your marketing money on, trying to get those people. And your customer profile would say that on average, statistically, people that do these jobs at this age bracket, this type of interest, will buy this product. Right? And you don't care about this sort of the outliers, you just want the biggest number of people to make the biggest amount of money. Uh, so then targeting customers, I mentioned about in the States now there's a big debate going on because the, the phone companies are going to be switching on your, your camera so they can read your facial expressions when you're looking at stuff, so they can target stuff to you much more precisely. Now in the States, that's not such a big deal, but over here it might be, certainly in Europe, I don't know, probably in England they won't care, but you know, it's a bit of an invasion of your privacy. But if their argument is you know, they're trying to give you the best possible product so you don't waste your money, if they can read your facial expressions when you're looking at different adverts, they know what you're interested in, and then the adverts that come to you are not irritating ones, they're ones you're interested in, because they can see that your face is lighting up. So targeting customers, how do you find out what they're interested in? Obviously, you'll do surveys and other bits and pieces, analytical things in order to make sure they're getting what they need. And then direct promotions. Again, somebody will say stuff. To, you'll probably get this junk mail through your letterbox, presumably saying this, this is going on, this sale's happening, or that product's coming out, etc., etc., uh, depending on what you sign up for. Um, I don't sign up for things directly, but indirectly I'll get stuff through my mailbox because I'm of a certain age bracket. Strangely enough, I'm getting loads of things, you know, like, like cruises for because I'm approaching 60s. So I'm getting all that stuff coming through my letterbox now. Ah, not going to retire for many, many years. Uh, operational management in terms of mouth and data, monitoring from operations, databases. Obviously, within the organisation here, controlling how students access the systems, um, and those things are updated periodically in order to fix stuff. Um, so, databases is or data data is used to monitor how systems are used. In terms of control of operations, if, if the college were to find out that cert there's certain bottlenecks within the system, then they'll try and fix those. So again, and this did happen, so there, were, there are certain bottlenecks between, as the college has evolved, they've added, obviously, over the last year or so, they've added loads of computers into this block. That's caused loads of bottlenecks in the system, going back over to A block where the main servers are. So over the last month or two, Often late at night, the network team have been installing bigger switches in order to cope with all this extra data traffic because this building's done. And next year, I think over this summer, A Block, which is the really old one where the cafeteria is, is being upgraded. I think this summer, and there'll be a new loads of new stuff in there. Again, that's going to add loads of extra burden to the network. So you need to monitor that and control that you don't add too much that it cripples everything else. Uh, setting and monitoring KPIs, everyone know KPIs, three-letter acronyms, right? So you'll say, if we're doing all this stuff, how do we measure whether it's been successful or not? Now, what's the indicators that tell us that we've done the right thing? Um, and I guess, you know, your KPIs are going to be your grades, aren't they, at the end of the day? If you don't get your grades, then your KPIs have not been achieved. Your only KPI, really, at this college isn't to how many lattes you can have down at Costa. It's what grades you're going to do, because that takes you to the next phase, Nothing else really matters. And the other thing about uh, data, operational management of data, is service improvement. If, for example, um, if a local organisation gets loads of complaints, or I guess like if the college gets loads of complaints, they'll try to do something about it. The service needs improving. Right? What can be done about that in order to improve stuff? Data analysis helps you see where the problems are in order to make the service better. And, and interestingly enough, over the last few years, in terms of relational thing, in terms of um, operational management, most organisations over time have outsourced because it's much cheaper, right? Particularly in terms of um, East Asia and India, obviously they're ex, you know, ex part of the British Empire, so they're, they're very good at speaking English, they're very well educated, 
um, good universities. So you can get really skilled staff in other countries that all, all you know, don't need to pay them very much. So loads of companies jumped on that bandwagon and outsourced. It's now coming back a little bit. In terms of service improvement, a lot of people are complaining that that service isn't good enough and they want local people. Uh, so a lot of banks and things like that are now bringing that service back in-house. They can afford to do that because they're closing down the high streets, which is quite expensive in terms of rent. Right, so they're setting up online systems. And, and again, this is the sort of change in patterns. I think a lot of people are now working from home because of the pandemic, and they stay working from home. So probably lots of banks will pay people to stay at home to do customer service from home. And then they can close down the high street banks because they're expensive. Right, so service improvement, that'll improve things. But again, I think you know, service improvement always means could be two sides, couldn't it? The improvement in service I'm going online means that the 11 million people that can't use internet very well have just lost their service. And that the, the elderly people that need to go down to the local bank to do their banking can no longer do that because they have to go online and they can't go online because they don't know how to do it. So it's, that service isn't good for everyone. Uh, types of data access management across platforms in digital environments. Again, so if you've got this all sorts of different interactions, you're wandering around on your phone doing stuff, that's updating to the systems here, there and everywhere as you don't go around. You're logging onto the computers doing things. All these different digital devices are collecting and storing and managing data across all sorts of areas, aren't they? And anything that you do, again, 90, I think 96% of, uh, of the biggest internet sites are running on Linux. Again, you're probably accessing them with your Android phone, which is Linux, or your Apple phone, or your Windows device all these different systems talking to each other, and how does all that work? So user access control, so physical access to this data, that's actually logging in and doing it, that's, that's going on to a, a physical database and doing things there online. Remote access, so that's, you know, again, having a database on your own laptop, working on it, or going on to, if you came onto the college system, log onto the system to change some stuff on the database about you. It may be on student advantage, you might be getting irritating, uh, or you might not be getting any phone calls because you've changed your phone number, but you haven't told the college. The college is phoning this number, irritating somebody, saying, I need to talk to your son. Who is this? That sort of thing. So you need to update that data locally. Um, remote access, obviously, if you're on your phone, on your phone, presumably, you can get onto student advantage, I guess. Can you? Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of accessing data, it's about permissions. So you'll have increasingly, like banks have three-factor authentication, so you'll have to put in a password and a secret password and a weird load of numbers and all sorts of different things in order to get your bank. Now that's to protect you. And once you've done that, you probably get sent a, a message number to your phone. Like all sorts of different mechanisms to try and protect your data in terms of permission and authentication. Am I talking to this actual person or not? You know, particularly for your bank, you should want as many layers of difficulty to get to your bank as possible. You don't want people emptying your bank account because they we figured out your password is your cat's name or whatever. Monkey. Um, right, so then application program interfaces, APIs, all sorts of different systems. Again, in order for you to use Moodle at the moment, Moodle's got an API which talks to um, LDAP. Right? All of your data is stored on LDAP lightweight directory access protocol. That's a database that runs internally to a Windows server, which stores all of your login details, your username, your password, all those access elements. In order for the Moodle to actually access and let you onto it, it has to come into the server here, check those data details, then go back and store it in its own database. So Moodle is, is in Milton Keynes, some server somewhere out there, I think. So every time you access Moodle, it's got, you're logging into Moodle, Moodle's then coming back into the college and saying, is this person okay to use these systems? Yep. And what can they do? Are they staff? Are they students? Etc. It sends all that data package back to Moodle, and then Moodle logs you on and shows you all the courses you're doing. All of that through the APIs, application program interfaces. That's two systems talking to each other. And again, it allows that software to work. So same sort of thing. Um, not quite the same because I haven't, haven't in, enabled it, but if I wanted to, I could, I could make Mahara that I've created talk to the college's LDAP system, right? And I could authenticate through that if I wanted to, or through a phone system, or all sorts of different things. All of that is these APIs, which are commonly available. Um, application of access control methods. We've done this with Gemma. 
I'm not. I'll have to I'm gonna read this off a little bit because this is new to me. Um, or something's new to me. So role-based access control. So again, when you log into your college network, you're given the role of a student and that gives you certain profiles on your desktop, right? When I log on, I get slightly more. If the, la the admin logs in, they get slightly different. And if the college admin staff log in, they get different stuff again. So on a Windows server or a Linux server, you have all these different access controls, group policies, which allow you to do things based on what your role is within the organization. So again, when you log into your, your bank, the role is as a customer, but presumably, I don't, do you have a access to staff stuff at work? Any staff log into their website? Uh, yeah, quite a few. So you've got a staff account, so you've got a slightly different account. Now, so again, you, you can log into a Tesco site as a slightly different and get slightly different permissions. And that's role-based, right? So that's your role as a, either as a customer or as an employee, and it could be two different things, you know? Um, Attribute-based access control, so I guess, when you log in, it will look through the attributes, the bits and pieces that make up your profile and say, this person's got an attribute which says they are security related, so therefore we'll let them in and show them some of these different security things, which I won't let anyone else see. Right, so that's one attribute. You're, you're given a certain security level attribute which allows you to do see different things on the system. Or the attribute might be that you're part of the admin team, so you can see this. You might be part of the sales team, so you're going to see this, right? So the attribute is something that's specific to you, which allow you to see different things on the system. That makes sense? So attribute. Uh, mandatory access control, I assume, is that you have to pass all these different tests before you're allowed in, right? So mandatory means that you, it's performance-based. If, you will only get into the system if, right? So a mandatory access control might be, again, if you're... If you're logging into an exam that's been preset for you at a pre-time and date, you can't get in unless all those all those elements have been met. So there needs to be mandatory controls to stop people getting into where they shouldn't go. And then discretionary access control. I guess the best example for that is when we get visitors here, um, they'll have access control only for that day. Right. So when people come in as temporary staff, if they just come in for one day, the college will allow them a login that only lasts for that day because when they leave there's so many people come and go from this college it's just easier to just set it for the day as discretionary and they've got access to the system and then when they leave it disappears so it's at the discretion or the allowance of the system and that can be set up that way i don't know i'm not don't hold me to this but i don't think that sort of thing will come off the exam it's probably worth knowing i suppose it may be maybe something along the lines of how can you how can you make sure the right people get onto your system? So you could say you can assign some type of control system. You don't even need to go into detail, just say some type of control system based on their who they are, what they do, what they know, what they can and can't know, right? Rather than going into specific details, if that makes sense. Right, that's three done. Hooray! So this afternoon, we can make a start on four digital analysis. Well, we say we'll look at it and see how much we need to go. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Hopefully, you learned something. If you didn't, listen to it again. You might actually learn.